0: Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. It is a Wednesday morning ish where I'm at. Uh, Nate is out of town doing some work in Colorado. So today we've got Rob Chetawa here. In the co host chair. Hey, Rob.
1: Yeah. Hey, ch- with But I was
0: like, <laughs> that makes more sense. I'm not even going to say whose fault that was, but yeah, I was but like looking at the name, your last name, because I only have you as Rob C. Oh, yeah.
1: In yeah, my yeah.
0: contacts. No. And
1: well, for the listening. listeners, we're really good friends, as you can tell.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good to see your face because I when nate first talked about you and justin were doing something and i'm like well which rob is it because i know he he, i see him every year at the annual retreat however there are more robs than any other name i think at the annual retreat and i started going through the list is it this rob is it this rob he's like no no i'm like oh for pizza so it's good to see your face do i get to see it again this year yeah i'll
1: be all i will be at the retreat um and there are amazing robs that show up by the way so shout out to all the robs um yeah i you know my first year at the retreat i i was nervous i was scared i felt out of place i still wasn't comfortable in my own recovery skin
0: how did you end up there
1: yeah i wasn't i wasn't comfortable in my body i You know, I got, I got invited the first year, said, no second year. I said, it's time, you know, it's time to take a, um, to lean into the uncomfortable. Um, I had a couple of friends that that I had been in groups with for over a year and they were going. And so I had some support to go through that. And I I would just sum it up like this. Um, and I hope that everybody that listens experienced this at the retreat, if it's post retreat, but to be in a group of men that are living life open hearted, that are working toward a common cause, a common goal, um, have a common struggle, and can understand and relate to each other. I just, there's a sense of community that's much deeper than I've ever experienced, and so much more than you can experience online via Zoom. So super excited about what's to come, Jason Gray, and of course, uh, you know, Rowan Hunter, the crew, really excited for them.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be great. Now, where are you calling in from right now?
1: I am in Raleigh, North Carolina, originally a kid from Iowa, so Midwest, not the potato state. Um, <laughs> but no, Midwest, uh, via Florida to Pennsylvania, then back to North Carolina. So I've been over the East Coast for the last 13 years. It's been wonderful. I just did 2 weeks in Iowa. I'll tell you what, I'm Iowa out. I love I love my I love I,
0: my Iowa out. What what causes my, one to be Iowa out? I feel like that Iowood. must be a specific journey.
1: Yeah, 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 I loved my hometown. I saw friends. I saw family. I ate my favorite foods. Um, you know, lots of bacon, lots of pork, lots of sugar cookies. And, uh, you know, I just – two weeks was a lot, and I was ready to come back to Raleigh. I, I, I would say this. I did a – I have a Tuesday group, Samson group that's a closed group, and I, I shared with them last night. I, I became disconnected from my heart when I was in Iowa
0: really and, why what what do you think caused that yeah
1: you know it's a couple things i i have this herniated disc in my neck and i'm i'm not i don't want to complain about it but it's constant pain i got a cold in the second week i was engaging with friends and family that w- those conversations weren't going deep mm. they were surface how are you what are you doing and we were talking about things in life but we weren't really talking about deep
0: topics yeah. Yeah. You weren't I, talking about life. You were just talking yeah. about events.
1: Events. And I just, I just missed it. And, and I could have called in, I could have interrupted my schedule and, and made some of my regular you know, groups that, that I get a chance to do that with. But I, I fell out of practice and, mm. uh, you know, I walked back from, or I came back from the event thinking, I just feel disconnected from myself. And, uh, and so this week's been a, kind of a rebirth or refinding my heart, if you will. Mm, um, and this podcast that you all listen to here in just a minute was is part of that. I mean, uh, Ian was a fantastic guest doing some amazing work. I'm excited for the listeners to uh, to hear about Naked Truth Project.
0: It is always exciting to, to meet somebody new and hear about what they're doing. I, I don't know. It just... I, I don't know what it's like to listen to the podcast. I don't know that I've ever listened to an episode of the Pirate Monk podcast. <laughs> 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 it is for the listeners. But I know for me, I'm just kind of waiting. I was excited about our interview today. Uh, I had looked up our guest and saw stuff that he was doing, saw a little about his story. And uh, yeah, it was just one of those mornings where I'm like, I'm going to make a cup of coffee and do this.
1: Well, let me ask you this question. So I, I have this intuitive belief that if you have an accent from any other country, Ian happens mm-hmm. to be from, from England, um, from Manchester, South London, I think he said, um, you have instant credibility with me.
0: <laughs> yes. I know. It's so true. Yeah. I, yeah. I Not all accents. I'm not going to say <laughs> which ones, but a couple accents put put it in kind of a negative category or I don't want to say it. It's certain as I have – Talk to people I know are brilliant and way smarter than me, but their accent is not helping them out in the credibility department.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're talking but about people from California, right?
0: We don't have accents in California. <laughs> what are you talking about?
1: Native Californians. <laughs> we, we
0: are the non-accent state.
1: <laughs> I, you know, uh, it's funny. Growing up in Iowa, I thought the same thing. You know, I don't have an accent. And now you you leave for 10 years and you hear the You hear that kind of northern Minnesota draw. You hear a little bit of the Chicago twang, a little bit of the Wisconsin, um, you know, tween, you know, tweak. And so I'm Mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Iowans have accents. That's definitely true.
0: Wow. Well, I did. I did enjoy when Nate and I were in Scotland and I was getting to have interesting conversations with people with Mm -hmm. wonderful accents and thinking they all think I have an accent. I still can't wrap my mind around it. But I'm the guy with the accent. Yeah, but I, yeah. I, I don't think many of them have the same reaction to it that you and I do for their accent. I don't think yeah. they're like, wow, that's so cool. Yeah, know.
1: no, I don't think so either. I don't think so either.
0: So so disappointing. I think Australians do, though, but not so much the British. Well, enough of that. Let's get to this actual conversation with our new friend, Ian Henderson. And uh, so with that, we will be right back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. welcome back to the pirate monk podcast we get the honor today of talking with someone from across the pond from the uk we have ian henderson with naked truth
2: today on the show welcome ian (laughs) Wow. wow wow thanks for having me yeah it's really good to join you guys now, you, you are in
0: Manchester, and all I know about Manchester, I was taught from Morrissey. So I know that Hector was the first in the gang with a gun in his hand. Mm. That sounds like a scary place. You've been <laughs> in Manchester for a long time. Tell, tell me more. I don't think Morrissey gave me the full education. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, uh, well, Manchester is... Uh, I think there's a big there's a bit of beef going on between Manchester and Birmingham to see who's like the second city in the UK. Is it is it Manchester, is it Birmingham? But uh it's probably the one of the one of the other kind of well-known cities here in the UK. Uh probably known for football a soccer as you guys would call it um you know we've got a couple of big teams that uh, some people might have heard of even in the states manchester united and manchester city um but uh yeah music is a big part of manchester's history as well and, and a great place to live yeah and good place to be now have you did you grow up there or no so um yeah, the accent you hear is not Mancunian. Man- a Mancunian accent would be a little bit more like, all right, mate, how you doing? That's kind of more Manchester. <laughs> um, this is this is a little bit more kind of um, London, Southeast London, uh, what what I would call a Mockney twang. So not quite a Cockney. It's kind of, because I, I, w- I wasn't from the proper bit of East London that people call Cockney, but kind of... <laughs> around the area people all sound pretty much the same so it's that's what this accent is um, and yeah my wife and I moved to Manchester about 20 years ago um, and we did that out of mission actually so we we did that to um, set up a, a project in what at the time was the most deprived kind of a community in the UK. And uh, we lived in that community for about 20 years. And we've only just recently moved away. Actually, my wife still works in that community. But yeah, we moved there to do some youth work, to plant a church, to do some different things. So uh, yeah, uh, Manchester now, is home, definitely. But
0: yeah, now, I, I want you to get into your story. But first, I am very curious to set it up with a question that I am really looking forward to your perspective on. I don't watch uh, TV, but every Mm -hmm. night I go to bed watching British panel shows and have for years. So whether it's eight out of 10 cats, eight out of 10 cats does countdown QI, all those shows. And they are some crass, Shows like here's TV, this is on television, I assume. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. there is sexual innuendos constantly. They're s- straight up joking around about masturbation, which most people don't mm-hmm. even want to say the word masturbation, although they usually use the word wank, of course. But, anyways, they're talking about masturbation. Yeah, and then and then I was thinking about uh, I, I was madly in love with Samantha Fox when I was in the sixth grade. And okay. I remember later hearing an interview about her and she talked about a thing called page three, that she was a page three girl. Yeah. Which ev- evidently was just softcore porn in the middle of a, the sun, which was a mainstream, what
2: newspaper yeah. magazine, a tabloid newspaper. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I thought, man, this is weird because when I have been in the UK, I have a lot of <laughs> conversations with people talking about how open Americans are emotionally open they don't mean it as a compliment it seems to annoy most of them so here you live in a world that is very different than ours where there's kind of this shameless approach to sex in some ways and yet a completely hidden aspect to it can you bring all that
2: together make me understand the uk okay wow uh, i don't think i've ever had this this conversation before so l- let me gather some thoughts um I mean, I guess, I guess you know. I know Downton made it over to the US, and and so I guess there's a little bit of a, a thing that maybe is in people's mind's eye of England being this kind of prim and proper Downton type place. Um, and uh, certainly, there is um, a little bit of history, I think, for the UK um, that that is, you know, perhaps. Uh, yeah, reserved and Victorian era is kind of famously quite, you know, people would kind of even go as far as saying prudish in the sense that um, there was some great stuff actually that went on in Victorian times around around kind of healthcare and social justice, but but it also felt like there was a lot of stuff that got hidden as well and particularly issues around sex to the point where in Victorian times... Uh, tables would be covered because they thought it was uh, you wouldn't want to see the leg of a table because that might be triggering for you. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, t- was, I know tables was, always do it for me. Tables yeah, and, exactly. and knees so, look close tubes,
0: so it's fine. <laughs> arousal <laughs> templates, yes.
2: <Yeah>. So, <laughs> so this is this is the kind of background and the and and I guess the history that the UK has kind of had around sex. Is uh, you know maybe it, it it has been kind of hidden and not talked about, and then of course like like you guys, but very much um, I guess was the sixties sort of and the revolution uh, and, and that kind of happened around the sixties, a social revolution was kind of birthed out of places like London. Um, And I think that was really significant for the UK. That was kind of like a a, a choosing, a generation choosing to not want to be like their mothers. In fact, mothers wanted to be like their daughters rather than the other way around. And, you know, that was in fashion and that was in music and that was around kind of sex as well. And I think the UK hasn't looked back really from from the 60s. You know, it's been about... Anything, um, you know, would be seen as repressive, uh, uh, any kind of sort of moral kind of guidance or uh, would be seen as as trying to hold back what was this kind of step into freedom during the 60s, in, I think would be how that was perceived. So famously, there was a lady um, in, in the UK called Mary Whitehouse, and uh, she was this... Christian lady in her 60s and 70s who probably around the 70s and 80s did a lot of kind of campaigning around the sort of stuff that was on TV, you know, bad language and uh, some of the kind of innuendo you've you, you've talked about, and it was nothing like it is now. But you know, it was kind of the boundaries were being pushed in the 70s, um, and she campaigned about that and did sort of. Uh, you know rallies and and things like that and actually what's been really interesting although she did some really great things I I believe that she was a bit of a prophet in that time in lots of ways mostly these days she would be laughed at Uh, in fact there was even a comedy kind of uh program on during the 90s called not uh the mary white house experience and it was like these alternative comics the type you would see on your panel shows now uh and it was this kind of like yeah we've left that behind that was grandma's time this kind of prudish you know don't don't talk like that don't think like that uh and it's seen as outdated uh, and all that kind of stuff what's so fascinating is that the It feels like there's been a full circle. So what's really interesting, Samantha Fox, who you mentioned, uh, who was famous for topless photos in this mainstream newspaper, which still exists um, and that Mm -hmm. still happens. um,
0: And that that was was like 16 years old, I think she said in that interview.
2: Yeah, well, I guess she probably was lying about her age. They certainly wouldn't have published her being 16 because they would normally have this photo and then there'd be a little bio sort of saying, you know, this is so-and-so and, you know, this is her age and we're, and the town she's from or whatever. Um,
0: uh, okay, but full, full but circle,
2: she, sorry. Yeah, yeah, she came, she uh, did come to do interviews later on sort of actually saying what what we normalized in that time is now kind of creating all sorts of, problems today uh and so as we look at young people and we look at uh, their particularly their access to unregulated anytime anywhere content uh that is uh you know as we would know hardcore aggressive often abusive often violent content it's so interesting to see that even even in that kind of quite um Uh, those, those places, Uh, another example would be, um, we have, we had these things called lad mags that kind of happened in the nineties, which again, were kind of like magazines aimed at men in their sort of twenties and they would really be over the top. You know, they would have the boob issue and they were trying to do this whole thing of how many, how many different photo and it wasn't pornographic in the top shelf, kind of that sense pornographic magazines. This was meant to be kind of mainstream media. Um, and uh, interestingly, even the people who, who did that sort of stuff uh, later on, 10 years later, were doing documentaries saying, we've created something here. We created a, uh, an acceptance, a normalization around attitudes to do with sex and and pornography and what's acceptable and what's okay. And we are now kind of reaping Uh, some of the problems with that, because we just see that young people today are are in a real mess because of it. Uh, And it's been really interesting to see that full circle happening culturally here.
0: Tie that in with my experience with that kind of emotionally repressed, I don't want to talk about my feelings kind of thing that I experienced over there. When you're facing a problem of something like pornography that got normalized over the decades, and Mm. if people are struggling with it, in a culture where you don't really talk about your struggles, that's a little bit too much. Yeah. How how does that affect the healing process?
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we. I often talk about this idea that when I started a porn project, which, you know, isn't the sort of thing you talk to your careers advisor at school about, um, (laughs) uh, but when, when that happened, and I can tell you about that later, what was really clear is that Pornography was taboo, and it was taboo to talk about it in church at all. To kind of mention pornography in church uh, was like this: no, don't do it. But what was taboo in culture um, was to suggest there might be anything damaging about it, or harmful about it, or unhelpful about it, or problematic about it. Even uh, that that was a taboo. It was kind of like no, this is fine, this is great, this you know. And there was you know sharing links and wee and lads, lads, lads. You know, lots of. Acceptance, but no acknowledgement that maybe there's a, a downside or even a dark side uh, to pornography, and 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 that was back in 2014. I would say that is, as I said, shifting. I think people are now even out, you know, outside of the church. I think people are saying, yeah, maybe maybe there is something problematic here. Maybe maybe porn. Is impacting my my relationships, or maybe it has become uh, too controlling for me and compulsive in my life. And I, I'm I'm hearing those conversations happening um, probably more outside the church than inside the church, actually. Um, but I think that uh, yeah, it's a big it's a big mountain. Uh, this yeah. this kind of thing of can we talk about right. porn being so- a problem? So with that whole
0: context of where you came from, and Rob, feel free to jump in and interrupt any time, give us your story because your life was deeply impacted by this during a time when it certainly wasn't being openly talked about.
2: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I've, I'm, so I'm nearly 50 um, and uh, probably like a lot of guys, my age, my, my sort of first experiences of porn would have been analog right so it was man- magazines it was going into the what we would call a news agent uh, where they sell those magazines and papers and things like that and all, all the magazines being on on a top shelf supposedly out of reach to young people and so. Actually, it was quite difficult to have exposure to, to pornography because there was a shopkeeper standing there who was checking your age and uh, taking your money. Um, occasionally at school, you know, someone would bring in a magazine that they'd found, you know, under their dad's mattress or their older brother's mattress, and they'd charge you, I know, a pound to have a look at it for for a bit, and then you'd have to give it back again. You know, there were some entrepreneurs in my school. Um, but it was... <laughs> It was, um, you know, it was minimal, really, the exposure. So maybe because of that um, and and that I, I did certainly look at porn and as a teenager, you know, I kind of had some exposure to it. But um, I think probably as I then went into my 20s and into adulthood, um, I probably would have defined porn as, something that some people struggle with sometimes. That was kind of where where I had it in my, and particularly as I started to get involved in kind of church life and church work, mm. uh, I'd, I'd come across some people occasionally and they'd say, yeah, this is a bit of a, a problem for me. Uh, you know, I'm looking at it and I more than I want to, or I'm looking at it and I don't want to. Um, and so, you know, that would be a, a bit of a discipleship conversation or, or whatever. Um, but I, I certainly didn't see it as being more prominent a problem than, as I say, something that some people struggle with sometimes. Um, And then uh, it was 2007, and um, I was actually doing something, and my mum phoned me, and uh, because I was in the middle of this thing, I I didn't pick up the phone, but then I I picked up a voicemail, and basically in this voicemail, my mum was saying to me, yeah, your father has been arrested. Mm, and wow. my mum and dad, Christians. Um, my dad at the time was a CEO of a, a, a Christian uh, nonprofit. Um, they were really active in church life. So not, you know... Not the parent you'd expect to get arrested, you know. I've got friends whose oh. dads got arrested a lot, and that probably that phone call wouldn't have been a surprise. But for for me, that was like, what? What do you mean? Trying to process that, I rang my mum back. She's like, I don't know what's happened. All I know is that police came to his office and yeah. he he's been arrested, and now they're here in the house and they're yeah. taking stuff out of the house. They're taking out computers. They're taking out files from his study. Uh, and and. I think when she said that, I began to wonder, um, and then a few a few hours later, we we found that he had been charged with having indecent images of children on on his computer at work, and that for us was where we discovered that for, he had had this. Uh, well, what i would now call it an addiction but i probably didn't even use that language at the time uh but you know he had this this decades of of addictive porn use which yeah was the end escalated or or spiraled into um him crossing over the line and 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 starting to download and access that abusive material that was found um but for but for many years it was mainstream and, and it was legal. Um, but I'll be honest, I don't actually know a lot more because probably a, a couple of days or weeks after he was arrested, he also got diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. Um, he um, basically we were living I wasn't living at home at the time. I, you know I'd, I'd marri- I was married by then, and we were living in Manchester, so I was coming over every now and then and normally it was either for a court a, a day or for for a hospital a, appointment and within uh, a year he he was being sentenced uh, and, and he was given an a, a suspended sentence because he had weeks to live at that point so he basically went straight into hospice and he, he died a few weeks later wow that, that um, is
0: that is so heartbreaking and I'm yeah. just trying to like how old were you? Early thirties? That's uh, Yeah,
2: 30s I would have been, yeah, probably late twenties at this point. Yeah. So, um, so what, what,
0: what did that do to your healing process and how you even processed what was happening?
2: Mm.
0: Because your dad passing is, I, I just can't imagine from your place, how that must have felt and what you experienced.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think one of the things about it and the way that happened is that, um, obviously at the time of his passing, I was still quite angry with him, you know, with everything that had happened. I was still, Mm -hmm. hadn't processed a lot of that. Um, and even as I began to process what it would mean to, um, forgive and, and, and to, uh, just process all, all the stuff connected to, uh, the porn use and the, and the betrayal and what he'd hidden and what he had done and, and, and everything that that meant. Um, there wasn't anyone to, to talk to directly about that. I mean, obviously I could talk mm. to, to, to other people, but, but I could never talk to him about that. That was, Ooh. that, thing that was left. And as I said, what it meant was, I still don't really understand. And One of the few things I remember him saying um, in in one of the few conversations that we had, I think we just always assumed that we will talk about this at some point, Mm -hmm. but not now, because there's all this immediate stuff that we're trying to deal with. Um, And so we just didn't have a lot of conversation. I don't really know um, much about his this hidden part of his life. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, But the one thing he did say was years previously, um, he had seen something, um, uh, a flyer or or something. I can't imagine where he'd seen it, but it was offering some sort of recovery, some sort of support. And uh, I think it was maybe a a kind of residential intensive thing or that kind of thing. Because he said, I knew I knew it's what I needed and I knew there was no way I could expose myself t- to get that help. And yeah. and I think, I don't know for sure, but I think at that point he was he was accessing, you know, mainstream legal content. I don't I don't mm-hmm. think it was he a fear of, you know, I will get arrested. Yeah. I think it was it was just the shame and the taboo sure. and the stuff that many you know, porn users feel, they just, I don't want anyone to know. I feel, I feel ashamed. So
0: Um, so prior to that, you said you were seeing pornography could be a problem, not a big deal. And now there's got to be a big shift in your life and your thinking.
2: Yeah. 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 Well, again, I, 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 for a long time, I, um, didn't even want to think about pornography, you know, uh, because it was painful to think about. Um, but I think Uh, Quite early on, I I began to realize or one of the shifts that took place was that I understood porn could be addictive. You know, it was how I processed what had happened to my dad because I understood Mm. that, I mean, I was working as I said, I was working in a community where I'm surrounded by people who have other addictions, you know, drug and alcoholism. It it was rife in my neighborhood. Um, And so I understood a little bit about addiction. I knew how addiction is, is a, is a, you know, a sickness that, that causes people to, to act out in ways that go against their moral compass, that, that cause pain to others, even though they love those people, you know? And so, even though i hadn't at that time sort of read any of the some of the clinical research that had been done around porn addiction i hadn't read some of those things i think i i began to think about the fact that what if this isn't just somebody not trying hard enough you know what if this is more than that Mm -hmm. you know what if this person uh, my my dad who i knew uh, and i knew what he stood for i knew what he believed in and i knew who he was you know what if somehow this was something that that wasn't just a, a bad discipleship choice that that yeah. it was more than that and i think even just that happening was really key in helping me reframe what poor news can be for people and and um and i think the other key thing that happened to me uh as i as i as as i was saying is as i began to reflect i was thinking what if there had been help that was accessible, you know, yeah. what would have happened, you know, yeah. and, and how, how could my, someone like my dad get help now um, and deal with all that, all that shame and all that fear and yeah. all that stuff that he was, he was, he was doing with not only would that have been preventative in terms of, uh, you know, the escalation, but, but which of course would be a good thing, but, but just, everything else, the healing he could have received and, 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 and yeah. everything else. Um, and it's, yeah, those, those two things were kind of early thoughts for me. Um, uh, what if this is, is addictive? Is that, and, and I began to look into that and think about that and found some research around that. And then the second question of, and if it is, or even if someone isn't addicted, but they just want help, but feel like they can't just, rock up at the church basement to the, you know, yeah. to the 12 step group, or they feel like they can't just tell their pastor or they can't. Yeah. What then? What, what does, is, does that it? Is that, is that, is that person then just completely hopeless or is, is there, is there something that could be done? And, and that, that became the catalyst for me trying to think through, you know, uh, some of the work we now go on to do. Rob, well, yeah.
0: give me your, give me your thoughts at this point.
2: Yeah, I just I want to just maybe
1: acknowledge what I'm feeling as I listen to your your story and your dad's story. I I feel the heaviness of having to hide um, that mm. I, I know that I experienced, and I can only imagine what your dad experienced. Um, and I can feel the heaviness of um, being scared to step out and say this is what I'm really dealing with, especially when he's built up you know, an image of who he is in the, uh, in his community. And I, I honestly have a lot of compassion as I just listen to your story. And it feels like, it feels like to me, you've used that compassion um, and you use your dad's story to fuel what has become just a wonderful organization. And I, I would love to talk about what the Naked Truth stands for. And as I, as I've learned, uh, by the way, I came across Naked Truth four years ago. I finished an intensive. And part of, yeah, part of the intensive in South Florida was like this weekly group thing. And they were charging almost 300 bucks a week per guy. Um, and I was like, (laughs) I I can't, I can't do that. Um, and a, a couple months later, one of my cohorts called me and said, Hey, I found this group out of the UK and this lady cat is fantastic. She's compassionate. She listens. She holds people accountable. She asks challenging questions. And I did some research and I, I never joined um, any of your, your groups at the time, mm. but that was my first exposure. Um, you guys just do wonderful work. You, you've, as you describe on your website, you find people when they're falling in the river. And so you're, you're, you're doing the education and the proactive work around uh, helping churches, helping the community, working through social media, and you help men and women on the, on the other side, once they've fallen in. So talk about yeah. the wonderful work you all do at the naked truth project.
2: Sure. Yeah. So I mean that's that kind of river analogy it, it comes from a quote from uh, Desmond Tutu. Um so he he said um at some point in his amazing world life uh he said you know it's it's so important that we rescue the people who are drowning in a river and we pull them out of that river but at some point we have to go upstream and find out uh, why they fall in the river in the first place and um yeah from the beginning of naked truth I, I i've i've wanted to um think about how we can be both upstream and downstream so for us that looks like uh, we talk about open eyes and free lives from the damaging impact of pornography so open eyes is education and awareness work um, and that probably came out of my my background because i I have no kind of expertise, qualifications, training, certification in in kind of recovery work, for example. I'm I'm a communicator. I've been involved in church world stuff and leadership stuff, but I've not not been involved in this stuff. So I guess when I first felt God nudging me to to maybe do something about pornography, um, I was working for a a Christian nonprofit at the time. and, And I guess I thought, oh, I can just sort of do this in my spare time, you know, a, a little, a little ministry side hustle, <laughs> yeah, uh, you, know, I'll, 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 you know, preach a bit about porn. I'll raise a bit of awareness. I'll start communicating about the issue. I'll, I'll, I'll get people thinking and talking about it. Um, and so I guess my, my initial thoughts were yeah, this, this just needs to be talked about. Um, and, and there were definitely people doing, doing some things, but it it still felt like it was something that was, um, not being talked about very much, and and as I said before, you know there was this taboo that I came across very quickly that in church it was dirty and disgusting. You didn't want to mention it, and and in society it was dirty and disgusting to say there was a problem with it. Uh, and so, open eyes is about that. It's about helping people in society, maybe for the first time opening their eyes to the 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 damaging impact of porn that maybe maybe there are people getting hurt here maybe you're one of those people getting hurt but maybe your your partner or your spouse is getting hurt maybe people on the other side of that screen are getting hurt and how how do we have a, a conversation about this thing that everyone just thinks is funny and let's make jokes about it but actually what if uh you know, there's, there's something a little bit darker and, and there. And so we, we did a bunch of stuff at the beginning that was just trying to engage people in that conversation that evolved into us working in schools. So now we probably see face to face, uh, around 20,000 pupils a year, um, wow. doing, uh, just lessons in, in their high school, talking very directly about porn because, You know, as I say, this generation, it's the first generation with any time, anywhere access to to unregulated content. Pause on that. that. Pause on that. Cause I mean, I've got a number of questions. Are these public schools
0: that are letting you come have these conversations?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, They are. Yeah. Um, And it's fascinating because you speak, if you speak to, you know, a teacher, you know, faculty, Mm -hmm. they have no doubt that, that. You know, porn, pornification of culture is a real thing. They have no doubt that, you know, they see it in the language. They see it in the attitudes of, of lads towards women. They see it in so many different ways amongst the young people, the, the, the students. Um, and we've not got until probably around a year ago, there wasn't anything in, in the curriculum and league, you know, in terms of the national, this has to be taught curriculum in mm-hmm. schools about pornography because it was the sort of sex and relationship education stuff in in the curriculum was 10, 15 years old. So, you know, the yeah. iPhone hadn't come out when the curriculum was written. Right. Um, and so schools are seeing it, but they yeah. were just like, this isn't this this isn't covered <laughs> in, yeah. in the curriculum. Um, but also but for, I think uh, uh, understandably are saying, I don't even know whether we want to have this conversation. I don't know if I want to mm. be having a conversation with right. yeah a fifteen year old, a class of fifteen year olds, you yeah, know. Um, but if there's that's, that's a hard tightrope idea, to walk, you'll come and do it. Fantastic! And so <laughs> they, the doors have been flung open, really, um, cool. for us so to do that.
0: F- for listeners who have not been involved in youth in this way. I remember I was a youth pastor in 2000, 2001, 2002 right when kids were starting to send instant messages, chat, mm. the whole DMing thing, I don't think it was called that then, was happening and porn was becoming available. Like it was the beginning of a shift and just in those few years what yeah. what you said the way the things that guys would say to girls and the things that girls would accept yeah was insane to me I'm, i I couldn't imagine being their age being a 15 year old and having yeah. the audacity to say that so it's a very big shift but then the second shift was when the girls didn't just accept that but you started to see girls also talking like that mm-hmm. uh so, how do these kids respond when you show up at their classroom? You got a bunch of fifteen-year-olds, and you start saying things that yeah.
2: they do not talk about with adults. Sure. Well, I mean, we we start our premise is, um, I mean, the lesson. One of the lessons, for example, is porn, What's the big deal? That's what it's called. Uh, cool. So we start. We're starting from the premise that they. Porn is normal. One of the things we do is we'll do a kind of, we use where our lessons are probably one of the few lessons that, uh, pupils are allowed to get their devices out because, uh, during a lesson, because we do kind of loads of voting and stuff and then it all comes up on the screen and it means we can get kind of, uh, confidential responses to things. So we'll ask a question on the screen, like, uh, when did you last look at porn in the last 24 hours, the last seven days, the last three months, you know, never. Um, Normally, um, we will see kind of 60 odd percent, we'll say in the last 24 hours. Uh, and, then, and then there'll be kind of like another 30 or so in the last week. And then, uh, you know, it, it kind of goes down from there. Um, so one of the, and, and we then, start- then you've got the liars, right? I got yeah, it. I'm tracking. Yeah. Well, no, no. I mean, often we're in co-ed classes. So, um, and I mean, we know, we know that one in three visitors to porn sites are female, but we also know, you know, there's, there are probably still plenty of, of girls who perhaps haven't seen porn. Um, uh, so where there is normally a mixture there. Um, and, uh, it's, Yeah, so we would start there. We would start with, we accept the fact that this has become normal, that this is Mm. almost, you almost probably, and one of the things I would say in that is, as you see that graph and you see that there's, you know, 55% have seen porn in the last 24 hours, um, but you also see there's another 30% who are saying they've never seen porn. That's really significant because, you could be in either of those groups thinking you're, you're, you know, there's something wrong with you because you're mm. in that group. yeah. Uh, and, and actually you're not, you're not alone. And that's the first thing to notice. But then what we actually do is we begin to uh, break down the fact that um, just because you can look at porn, just because it's there, just because it's available, just because it's normal. Uh, is, does that mean that it's the best thing for you? Uh, And so we, we kind of, we make a comparison, which is, is um, not unique, but we make a comparison to how porn is, is like the junk food of healthy sex and relationships. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, um, and we kind of break that down even further. So we'd say, if you went into KFC and uh, you're standing there and you ask these three questions. Okay. And so the first question is, is this good for my health? Um, and then, you know, I'm looking at my belly and I'm in my fifties and I'm going, maybe, maybe, maybe I should think twice here. Second question is, uh, you know, what's actually in this? Do I actually know what the ingredients are? Uh, how, how did, how did it even get made? What's in that gravy, man? You know, that, that <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, and then you ask the third question, which is, Uh, How did it get made? What's the carbon footprint? How far did it, did it come to, to get here or all that stuff? Maybe even if you just ask those three questions, is it good for my health? What's in it? How did it get made? Then you might, you might choose to, you know, pass on that craving that you've got. And so then we ask those three questions when it comes to porn and we help young people to start to think about, well, you know, what are the health implications? And we look at some of the the stuff that we know around, you know, addiction or ED, and we talk about all that stuff. Uh, But then we also say, well, what's in it? You know, what's the messaging? What's being normalized here in terms of things like, um, you know, self-image, the body images you're seeing? How's that affecting your self-esteem? How's it affecting your mental health? How's it affecting... uh, the relationships you're actually having with somebody, um, and do you feel pressure to do things you don't want to do because of porn and and all that stuff? And then, how did it get made? That's where we look at some of the kind of justice issues around some of the the big porn stuff and and the exploitation. And so we unpack all these things. We don't mention faith. We don't mention you know what the Bible has to say about it because in our in our school system that's that's not appropriate. Um, we we don't have permission to do that in in that way but um but what we try to help young people do is is journey through in almost quite rationally the fact that just because you can should you and and yeah. it's really fascinating to see how young people do journey with with that actually um you know we've got young people I don't know if you I mean I've got a daughter one of my daughters is fifteen. And she's choosing to be a vegetarian at various times. It's a bit on and off, but she's choosing to be a vegetarian, (laughs) not because she doesn't like a bacon sandwich, uh, a bacon butty, as they would call it in Manchester, but because there's a kind of, She's saying she's saying no to something she likes because she wants to say a bigger yes to something else, which is the environment and animal welfare and some of that stuff. You know, she understands there's there's a journey that goes into that that packet of bacon that that she she wants to do something about that's environmental uh, and animal rights and all the rest of it. And and you know, it's really interesting. I think this generation we're, we're talking about now are you know they they are activists they are willing to make bigger yeses to things actually they're wow. willing to say mm-hmm. no to things when they believe that there's a bigger cause that that matters and i actually think we've got a unique opportunity to help young people understand mm-hmm. that just because you can do porn and cuz it's there um what if there's a, but but what if that's like the bacon butty you might like it you might actually quite like looking at porn but what if there's something bigger, you know, social justice-wise? You just don't want to be part of the 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 blended, you know, porn hub. You haven't got a clue where that came from, and and the, um, what if you you actually don't want to be part of uh, systemic, you know, misogyny <laughs> that that's being played out. You know, some of these bigger things. Actually, young people do care and think about some some of them. It's not all of them. That's that's (laughs) no, that's
0: actually really interesting because that message that message and method of saying no to porn probably works better for the fourteen to twenty five year olds right now than it would for a forty five year old. And what a great way to tap into that. Because you're right. They they want to cause they want to feel like they're doing a bigger thing.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's that's amazing.
2: Right. And and sorry, just to say, I think also, interestingly, 10, however long we are, 2007, the iPhone came out, right? So however many years ago that was, interestingly, even now, I think uh, the digital natives are sort of going, hmm, is this helping us? They're like, they're they're in it, they're immersed in it, but they're starting critique it I'm I'm seeing I don't know if, if you are so even beyond porn even just the white some of the wider stuff I think some are starting to say hang on a minute is it what's this doing for me and and I think that's a, a good question that they're asking
1: well Ian, I want I want to bring that same thought process that you're introducing early into schools with teenagers and I want to I want to connect it to the mission of of what you're all doing at naked truth to help those that have fallen in the river. Um, and um, I'm going to read you just one sentence from the uh, one, one of the group's uh, homepages. This is, I think, whole life recovery. Um, you say, you guys write, at whole life recovery, the restoration of a person's life relationships and potential. right? And what I hear you describing is we're looking at potential in everybody at every age. You go on to say too many people gain freedom from their acting out behaviors only to live within their distorted thinking and behavior patterns. And as a result, too many of those people continue to hurt themselves and others from that position. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I think about the work you're doing on the front end, and then I marry that up with the work you're doing mm-hmm. on the back end. And I just see uh, a really robust, well thought out, intentional approach to helping people live the potential that we that we all have, that we're all given, that we're all born with. And so, I'd love for you to talk about the programs that you offer. It's like a tier. I see it as a very thoughtful, intentional tiered program, like starting point, aggression, maturity, right, and then ongoing. Yeah, um, And I also love the subscription model. i love for you to share with the listeners. What, what does a subscription model mean for a recovery program?
2: Sure. Yeah, great. So, um, yeah, just to kind of track back to, the, to, I guess, the story. So, as I say, we started early on with all this awareness and education, but it, what became very clear very early on was that we needed, we needed to not just talk about it. <laughs> uh, we needed to be able to help people. Um, and... God was incredible for me in that, in, in that, as I said, I had no, I had no history or, or, or training around recovery. Um, but God connected me very early on with a lady called Paula Hall, who is a psychotherapist, um, and was probably the UK's leading, uh, expert in sex and porn addiction who just happened to be a Christian. Uh, and she, she, um, in terms of her clinical work, she was like, "Oh yeah, you know, my, my, the fact that I'm a Christian doesn't really factor into that." But because of her faith, she she was really keen to to support this this new fledgling charity that I was starting out. So uh, in those early days, that was so helpful for for me um, that that we were able to work with Paula, use her materials that were tried and tested in in that kind of clinical world, uh, but also bring bring in a kind of holistic spiritual uh, view to it as well. We've always wanted our materials to be accessible to people of uh, no faith or any faith. Um, and so yeah they're unlike I mean you know obviously there's some great programs out there that that would be really deeply rooted in in scripture. Um, we we have deliberately not kind of baked scripture into content. Uh, but it mm-hmm. happens in community, uh, and so someone can someone can access uh, our materials as a non-Christian and not feel like they're wading through this stuff that they don't even know if they believe in, um, and and get help they need. But what they find is that when they're sitting in a group with a bunch of guys and you know, half of them are Christians and they're talking about how their faith is part of their process of, of recovery. That That is often a really, really powerful thing, actually. And we've seen lots of people, you know, really open up to, to faith in a new way, partly because they're in a, in a unique place of self-reflection, right? You're kind of like, right. I'm actually dealing with the real stuff right now. Uh, yeah. And so some of the barriers yeah. that, that yeah. We, we put up, already down which opens up things for for faith i think
0: well and the beautiful the the, the beautiful thing when when we get the opportunity to integrate our faith into our real life and it doesn't have to just be here's my spiritual bible study time and here's my uh porn time uh so what what about for people that don't live locally does this does this program and getting involved work for people like i don't know in the United States of america
2: yeah i mean and and that was um absolutely directly connected to this this point then that um, um I made about my dad you know of here's a guy mm. who doesn't want to turn up to a group right uh, um for for whatever reasons, and so one of the things we thought of very early on uh was the same technology that is creating anonymity and accessibility and actually affordability for the porn industry can be used to create anonymity, accessibility and affordability to those looking for help. And so we, we ran our first groups back in 2014 on this platform that no one had ever heard of called Zoom don't know if you've ever come across it it's like this (laughs) kind of video thing where people can see each other and talk to each other Same time, it's amazing um but i mean obviously we know it now but at the time no nobody knew but what it was but it was it was incredible for for our groups because it meant that guys were literally joining support groups while sitting in their car at lunchtime um via zoom and there was people in different parts of the country or even the world uh, in the same group as them uh, and nobody knew they were in this group. They could join a group because they they didn 't have to find one that was within a few miles of their house they it, none of that mattered because it was it was happening online but also it it just meant that the model we had was that that we could make it free or or whatever as well, and so that was really key and 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 it was my initial response or my initial answer to that that question of you know what what if there's someone like my dad who the idea of somebody um they know finding out was just too much at, at the start and so we ran uh, those groups for a number of years and then um we've we've kind of built on that over the years so now we have a few different things um Everything happens online. So, yes, in the US, you can join a group. uh, And and our team are based all around the world um, as well. We now have uh, a team of around uh, 13 trained, certified coaches and counsellors who who run uh, groups and programs. We have groups for men and for women. um, And um, we have groups for users. But we also have groups and programs for partners and spouses of users as well. And so what, what we offer is, um, uh, initially, it's normally an eight-week support group where you, it's, it's kind of you run through minute, the materials that Paula Hall had developed, uh, and that, that runs for eight weeks, uh, and that's called Click to Kick. Um, and that's free. Um, and then beyond that, then for users, we have uh, this subscription model, which is um, called whole life. So when someone has some a relapse strategy and a bit of a plan in place and they kind of feel like they're they're kind of working through being sober and actually the questions change. It's not about how do I stop, but it's all, it's much more about, well, how do I start? How do I start to rebuild my marriage? How do I start to rebuild my, my faith and my life, uh, beyond this? Um, that's a lot of what whole life is and whole life is, um, so that costs, uh, I think it's 50 pounds. So what's that? 40 bucks or something a month. Um, and, um, You can join groups, there's groups on different times during the week, and you can join as many of those groups as you want during the week. Uh, And that's kind of like a a more like a 12 step in the sense of you turn up and you'll see who turns up the same time as you. But that's facilitated by one of our, one of our our trained team. Um, And then similarly for Partners, we have a kind of similar journey as well. So there, there's there's kind of stuff that they can they can do initially, um, and then there's kind of the ongoing subscription support. Where and then we also offer one to one counselling and couples counselling and things like that uh, in, as uh, on top of those things. But I, that's all online.
1: Yeah, so anyway. I love, I I really do. I I love the idea. I love the concept, and and I love what you described for whole life. You know, and I, I had to make the same decision at some point. I was like, I'm so focused on stop doing that it's time for me. And I remember almost the exact time and moment. It's time for me to start becoming. Yeah, right? And I had, to, and I made this shift of what does becoming look like? Um, you know, someone, a friend of mine described recovery transitions into, into discovery. And I, and I love that mm-hmm. idea. And it sounds like your groups help men and even women move through that process of, what does it look like to stop and what does it look to become? And what, what I love about the model is that you have a certified coach that's sitting in the group, you know, at Samson, we we're a, a member run organization and we, we get together and we're all just here equally flawed showing up to help yeah. each other. Um, and it, and it works really well. It's a great opportunity to practice authenticity and vulnerability and, you know, awesome. just, I would just say skills that, that, that I haven't used or I hadn't used in, in many, many years. Um, you add to that with a, you know, certified, trained, licensed, you know, all, all these titles behind the name coaches that yeah. are there to help through that group process. I think that's wonderful. Um, so, how,
0: so how do people get to this and check it out and look yeah, at these subscriptions? Um,
2: so, I mean, a couple of things to say. So nakedtruthproject.com is the kind of starting point. So if you want to, Find out about us if you want to find out about particular programs. Best place to start would be NakedTruthProject.com. Um, I mean, one of the things I would say is where uh, that, that Click to Kick program that I mentioned, that kind of initial eight-week program, we that is facilitated by... Um, people that we train, but aren't, aren't trained, certified coaches. They're people who are just like, I've got a story. I want to make a difference. So we kind of train them to use the materials and, and lead those groups. And, and so we call those people's associates. Uh, so we train them. So there may be listeners here who are going, um, I'd, I'd love to be involved at that level. Uh, you know, I'd love to help others. And I know you guys are doing that through, through Samson, but if there may be people who say, actually, this is something I'd love to be involved with as well. Kind of check out that associate sort of stuff. There's there's ways, again, that you can find out about how you can help us lead some of those groups. Um, and we're even trying to train people to go into schools and, and do do that work in schools for us as well. Or, or run a, you know, on a university campus, run an awareness meeting where we'll give you materials so you can just grab, grab a load of guys or uh, some friends in your dorm room and uh just start that conversation about why is porn harmful and we've got videos and resources that can, can stimulate those conversations and so we've got different ways that people can get involved it, it's not just um for if you're looking for support for yourself or or um if maybe you're a partner but but actually if you want to be part of the the team in in trying to change things as well there's ways people can find out about that too
0: Before you wrap this up, I want to ask one more question that gets back to the story. Yeah. You experienced an incredibly traumatic time with what happened with your dad and then losing your dad and then not being able to resolve a lot of questions.
2: Mm. What has
0: it felt like to save your dad over and over again in the lives of these other people?
2: Hmm. Um, what a great question and thanks for framing it in that way. Um, yeah, I'm not, a. am not, I'm, I'm, I mean, if my honest answer would be I've, that has been my heart and my intention. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm always very good at, um, acknowledging the reality of that. So, mm. uh, thank you for, for helping me do that it's
0: an incredibly beautiful thing it feels healing to my heart just to to have that being a part of this ongoing story well we've we've spent enough time that we're just going to wrap it up we we don't have time for a closing segment so that's fine uh listeners send us your questions your thoughts your criticisms uh your inappropriate jokes to pirate monk podcast at gmail.com uh I would talk about the retreat, but I think this probably is coming out after the retreat. So I hope you had a good time at the retreat last November. Uh, I don't know, Rob, is there anything else we have to talk about? This is Nate's part. I don't, I don't do this.
1: Ian, thank you for your work. Um, Thank you for the redemption, the redemptive work that your team is doing. Um, Mm. I, I love the model. It's affordable. It's accessible. And I, my encouragement to the listeners is, if you need more structure and you need some coaching along the way, spend some time with uh, Naked Truth Project.
2: Yeah. Thanks for inviting me, guys. It's been really great chatting to you both. And, folks, I'm Aaron. This is
0: Rob. <laughs> and Ian. <laughs> and we are your pals today here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Arg.